Who do you believe? How does one verify what experience was really of God? This is Air Jaron. In this series on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossian Church, we are looking at the topic, standing against spiritual intimidation. Specifically, those who would intimidate you through mysticism. Air Jaron is produced by Global Radio Ministries and Jaron Ministries International. The Colossians series is written and taught by Dr. James Cece. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. Colossians 2:18 and 19. Mysticism puts forward the error that spiritual reality can be attained through subjective experience apart from the intellect and the natural senses. Emphasis is placed on feelings and intuitions rather than on objective, observable and external data. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. Colossians 2.16 Therefore no one is to act as your judge. Colossians 2.18 Today, even as in the first century, there are those who preach that you must add subjective experience to your faith in Christ to attain true Christianity. Whole congregations, even whole denominations have been built on this false notion that Christ plus something mystical is the true way to salvation. Last time, Dr. Cece spoke about television mystics. In this broadcast, he will conclude a section on standing against spiritual intimidation through mysticism. Here's Dr. Cece. You see, how about the many today who claim support for their unbiblical views with stories of visions and out-of-body experiences and even trips to heaven and back? How would you argue against that if I said today, you know, I went to heaven today. In fact, I got a message for you. I think you'd feel a little intimidated, wouldn't you? Oh, God. The problem is you read the stories and they conflict with each other. I read one story of a guy who went to heaven and came back, supposedly, and he said that he saw his children as infants that had died in infancy, and they were still infants. And then another guy, I read a story about him, he said he went to heaven and came back, and his infant children were now adults. Another guy described Jesus this way, and another guy described Jesus that way. Another guy had his puppy in heaven, and the other guy didn't. So we're now saying, you know what, heaven is anything you want it to be? Oh, really? When Jesus said in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you, he didn't say, I go to prepare anything you want it to be. He used the word tapas. The word tapas is a specific place. It'll be what it is. I don't know what it'll be, but it'll be what it is. Not what I want it to be. So what do you do with these stories of guys that go to heaven and back? Who do you believe? I'm asking this. How does one verify what experience was really of God and what experience is really true? Test the spirit to see if they are of God. How do you test them? You test them from the revealed word of God. Oh, too many in the body of Christ hang on everything these folks say is true without any accountability to the accuracy of their words and no concern whether what they're saying is biblical. 
Let me get more specific because I know you're not going to like what I'm saying. I'd really rather go home. And you'd much rather might not say these things. But we have a wide sweeping movement of people engaged in the spiritual experiences whereby they claim new revelations. A, a new word of knowledge. You know, the Lord told me that he's coming back this year. Whoops! Maybe it's next year. Or maybe he didn't come back physically. Maybe he just came back spiritually. Or I had a word of knowledge today. And the sad part is that many who practice these so-called end times manifestations argue for their position with us mystical arguments as, I don't care what others think. I had the experience. I can't ignore my feelings. It was real to me. You can't deny my experiences. And let me say to you, I don't deny your experience. I just want you to test your experience with the objective, revelatory word of God. That, just test it. You test every dream, test every whatever, test anything that's said by anybody. Then let me go on, because rather than deal with them, we need to look at the beams in our own eyes. I cannot tell you after 40 years of ministry how often I've heard people in my own circle saying, you know what, how can it be wrong when it feels so right? Oh, there are a whole bunch of things that are wrong that feel right. And the mysticism of today that comes packaged in a number of ways, beginning with an emphasis on experience and emotion as the best verifier of truth. But if Paul were alive today, you would expose it for what it really is. Since when does experience dictate our truth? Since when? Show me a chapter and verse. We don't measure what's right or wrong based on feelings. The Bible says there's pleasure in sin for a season. Don't be saying to me, well, it feels so right when I have to tell you, but the Bible says it's wrong, regardless of how it feels. Besides the emphasis on experience and emotions, we find invading the church is often a move toward intellectualism. Now listen, folks, I agree there are some things in this Bible that are hard to understand. I've been studying it now for over 40 years, and every time I study it, it's like going deeper and deeper and deeper and going, whoa, I don't understand that, Lord. I don't understand that, Lord, but I'm going to keep digging. Do you know how I wish I could just stick my Bible under a pillow and wake up and come and preach a sermon that's perfect? I know too many pastors who do that. I'll say to them, what are you preaching on Sunday? And they say to me, I don't know. I say, it's Saturday night. What do you mean you don't know? Well, I just pray and then I get up and the Spirit leads me. That's a little intimidating. I have to study 20 or 25 hours a week. You know, I have to, I have to read it in 40 different times, which is my practice. I then translate it from the Greek text. I then have to go to my commentators and I have to add my thoughts and I have to put it all together. I have to write a manuscript. I have to organize it in a way that is palatable to you. I have to throw some pictures up there so you don't lose me in the process. You know, I, I got to make sure that I got a few jokes, a few illustrations and dress nice and all that stuff. And I got to do all that stuff to pack. Wouldn't it be fun just to come into the parking lot on Sunday morning and say, I don't know what I'm going to say. Spirit, just do your thing. But these prophets of experience will say to me, Jim, you're too cerebral. And they argue that if I want to experience the fullness of the Spirit, then I need to let my mind go. 
I need to throw out my rational thinking and caution to the wind and just go with the flow. So I said to one guy, okay, give me a book. So he gave me a book on how to speak in tongues. This is many years ago. So I read the book. I said, this is the best book on the market. Now, I trust this guy in terms of somewhat being scholarly. And I said, okay, give me the best book on the market. Don't give me anything. I want the best book. He gave me the best book on the market according to what he believed and others believed. Here's what the book told me to do. i got to empty my If I want the new revelations of the Spirit, I have to empty my mind of everything. To be willing to do anything without deciding whether it's foolish or not. And if I have to, start slapping myself. Did you not? I didn't do it. The sad part of all of that is that many of those who experience these things honestly believe that they're reaching a higher plane of spirituality. Listen, I, if somebody wants to do something, they want to stand on their head and spit wooden nickels for Jesus, I'm not going to stop them. But don't tell me I have to do it unless you can show me chapter verse that tells me I have to do it. Amen? Anyone not experiencing what you're experiencing is really missing something. And, and if they just let go, we'd find that out too. And and they argue that, re that the reason we don't experience these things is a lack of faith, a lack of passion, a lack of commitment, a lack of trust, a lack of devotion. If that's not spiritual intimidation, what is? If you just love Jesus more, you would do that stuff. Really? Listen, if these experiences are truly a part of the Christian life for every believer, then I want to tell you right now, I say this to the public as well as to you, I want it. I'm not afraid of truth. But I want them not because others have had that experience. I want them because the Bible says that they're clearly for me. Why is that? I want to show you why. I take to heart First Thessalonians chapter 5. We studied this before for about a year, remember? Verse 19 to 21, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Watch this now. And it's the verse that they don't often add. But examine everything carefully. And other way, I don't just get to do what somebody tells me to do. I have to examine it. And the only standard of examination is what? The authoritative word of God and not your experience. And not what your mama did or your church did or you learned at a summer camp. What does the word of God say? And then we get people in evangelical circles that are debating today about CSM. Contemplative spirituality and mysticism, and CCP, contemplated centered prayer, and Christian TM, uh, transcendental meditation. You even have groups that are, are are arguing for Christian mantras. You know where you just simply empty your mind and say, Jesus, 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 Jesus. How is that any different from Krishna, Hari Krishna? Krishna Hari, Hari Krishna. How's it any different? And yet you have groups saying, empty your mind and chant the words and the names of Christ and he will reveal himself to you. And if you've not heard about that, you better open your eyes. I'm not even going to enter the debate there. I'm going to take you to what the scriptures say. Anybody with me? Three of you. God's answer, not mine. Not a denominations, not a local churches. God's answer to the mystics of all ages. What's to be our stand? Uh, I choose today to stand with the Apostle Paul. Anybody with me? Even if it makes me unpopular. Listen, I love the body of Christ. I love 
the diversity of churches, but I still have to stand and, if you will, float my boat what I believe, and I will not compromise that. And I'm okay with looking at my brother that says, I think you're wrong. Let's get behind closed doors, open up our Bibles. Don't tell me what you experienced. Tell me what the Word of God says. Earlier in chapter 2, verse 16, in answer to the threat of legalism, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge. Now, in the threat of mysticism, he says, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. Full of imagery here, he uses the Greek word with its present active participle, uh, you know, proteo there, and, and I can't put the word in English. Uh, the best way I can put the word is, he's saying, red alert! Don't let anyone keep defrauding you of your prize, uh, of cheating you of your reward, of robbing you of what is due, of denying your claim to the benefits of being a child of God, of disqualifying you from your prize that's promised in Christ. What's the prize? The prize is our assurance of eternal life in heaven that was given to us as a free gift. It wasn't earned. It wasn't deserved. And it was given by the grace of God alone, not based on how we felt. Don't miss that, folks. It was based on the objective reality uh, that you are chosen and beloved children of God. Remember Colossians 1, verse 5? Remember what we studied in chapter 1 and 2? Go back and read it. I don't want to review that. That we have a hope that's laid up for us in heaven because of the truth of the gospel. Not your feelings about the gospel. But what you want it to be. And we've come to a place where we've made the gospel so simple for people that it becomes non-gospel. You know, just say some magic word, zip-zop, and you're a Christian. That's not the truth of the gospel. The prize is our assurance that we can learn God's truth from the once-for-all delivered Scripture. In the midst of my reading through ten chapters of Psalms, the other day the Lord just kind of, you know, just said, okay, that's great, you know, and I didn't hear a voice, don't panic. But I just wanted to read Jude, you know, and so I just read the book of Jude. One, because, it, you know, I needed to because I was preparing for this message, and secondly, it was short. <laughs> and he talks about this once-for-all delivered faith. You don't have to guess, aren't you glad? And by the way, even the people in Colossae didn't have to guess. Oh, the prize is our assurance that we can learn God's truth from the once-for-all delivered faith scriptures without the need of someone mystical, with some ecstatic experience, some vision, some angelic messenger verifying it. Colossians 2.19 gives us the reason. He says, on what basis can we keep from being constantly defrauded, robbed, and cheated of our heavenly prize? How can we keep from being regularly intimidated by the spiritual manipulators with their ecstatic and unverifiable experiences? You know, what do we do about those with the warm, fuzzy approach to spirituality and not objective reality? How do you hold on? I want to tell you how you hold on. You don't do what the mystics were doing. And look what they weren't doing. They weren't holding fast to the head. That's what they weren't doing. It's not as complicated as you might think. Paul's saying you've got to hold on to the objective, unchanging, clearly revealed truth regarding Christ, the head of the church. Where are you going to find that? In Scripture, not somebody's experience. 
In other words, instead of seeking some ecstatic, mystical, unexplainable feeling or intuition or human sensation, hold on to the clear teaching of Scripture regarding your faith. You know what that's going to require, folks? That you study. Hold on to what you learn, what your mind understands. That's what Colossians 1 and 2 was all about. Don't be intimidated by these spiritual manipulators. Hold on to what you've learned. Refuse to let objective experience dictate the objective truth. Don't be, got, be beguiled by all this fanciful foolishness paraded in end times events. And you got a lot of people saying, well, in the end times, well, let me tell you what the end times were and what they're going to be based on what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, when he said, for the time will come. Now, remember, he's only a few months old, a few months old, a few months before he dies. He says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Healthy doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled. How much more can you have your ear tickled than somebody saying, I heard the voice of an angel today and I have a message for you. It'd be nice to hear, wouldn't it? Christ appeared to me in a vision today. You want to have your ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Oh, how we want to hear from Jesus. And wouldn't it be great if God just spoke to us audibly and told us what to do? Take that class at school. Don't take that one. Take that job. Marry that person. Do this and do that. Wouldn't that be easy? We all want that. Our own desires. And we will turn away our ears from the truth and turn aside to what, folks? Myths. The natural propensity of a human being, even a Christian, is to turn aside to myths when you don't spend time in the objective Word of God. And that's why we're committed to that here. Listen to Paul's words in that same book in 2 Timothy 2.15. He says, be diligent. What does that mean? You study and work hard. To present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately. It's a, it's a tent maker's term that means you got to cut it and put it together properly. To rightly divide. To be skilled in the Word of God. If you were asked, are you skilled in the study of the Word of God, what would you say? Look again at the second part of chapter 2, verse 19, and Paul's answers to those who would try to tell us that extra-biblical revelation will help us grow in Christ. Look at verse 19 again, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. Now, it's important to understand background here. Remember, you don't just read a verse and read into it. You exegete, you pull out of it, and you've got to know the historical, the grammatical, in order to exegete it and pull out. Historically, Paul's in prison. He's not just writing to the Colossians. He writes another letter to the Ephesians in which he explains what he just said right here in verse 19 in Colossians. He answers the question that's begged in chapter 2, verse 19 of Colossians, answers it in Ephesians 4, verse 11 to 16. He says, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Watch this. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge 
of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by what? Waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we're to do what? We're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. It would take me three weeks to explain this passage. How do we grow? Let me say it simply. We grow when every member of the body of Christ is not being tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine. In order to do that, you have to be equipped by sound doctrine. That's our job, but we can't force feed you. If you're not doing it on your own, you're remiss and you're in danger. It's like 9-11. We can have the standards up there, red alert, red alert, and you don't pay to the alert, pay attention to the alert, and you get hurt and your family gets hurt, then what can we do? Because we can't shackle you to safety. But you work together under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the head of His church. Listen, I am not opposed to feelings, emotions, responses, joy, celebration, praise, adoration. I'm not opposed to those things. But I'm not going to base my salvation on how I feel. Because I know the reality that sometimes when I feel close, when I don't feel close to God, and you know the old saying, if I don't feel close to God, guess who moved? See, the sad part that I have about my Pentecostal and charismatic friends who I love dearly, is that sometimes they'll say, I can't go to church today. Why? Well, I'm not up. I don't feel right. Because you've got to hike yourself up. You've got to get there where, where you've got to go and you've got to feel the emotions. Because if not, you won't, you'll, you'll be phony by saying, hey, praise the Lord, hallelujah, and dancing in the aisles. You know, you don't want to do that. And so you feel like you've got to feel something. Oh, God, I hope that you still come here to Campus Bible or another Bible teaching church where you come regardless of how you feel. Because you need to know more about who Christ is and what he's called us to do. Listen, I don't feel like being here today. You don't blame me, do you? Uh, you know, I would like to talk about daisies in heaven, but, you know, that's not what the text is talking about. See, the good news is that the Christian faith is based on the objective, verifiable, undeniable, scripture revealed truth of the gospel. What is that? That there is a holy and loving God who hates sin but loves me, who sent his sinless son to die on the cross for my sin, and by responding to his gracious and merciful call and trusting in his son Jesus Christ alone for my salvation, I can be assured of eternal life in heaven for eternity, and nothing can separate me from the love of God. Amen? And that's why we focus our attention on the word of God, our source of truth. And, ready for this, folks? Our source of true enlightenment. I want us all to experience full enlightenment. Do you know that? We can call it different things, but the Bible is clear what our source is for that enlightenment. And it's not some spiritual guru. It's not some pastor. Not some Bible teacher. That is not your source of spiritual enlightenment. Psalm 19, verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Watch this now. Enlightening the eyes. Of course I want our eyes open. I want in spiritual enlightenment. In order to have that, I'm going to have to study and meditate on the Word of God and to stand against those who would try to intimidate me through their mysticism, 
to not let anybody rob and cheat me of my security in Christ, to hold fast to Christ as my head, to hold on to the objective, inspired word of God, which is the measure and the validity of any experience I face, and to declare that I don't need ecstatic and subjective experiences as evidence of my position in Christ. And to declare before you that I believe that the Word of God, the Bible, means what it says. And that's why I can hold my grandchildren, and boy, have I got grandchildren, in my lap and sing to them so often the B-I-B-L-E. That's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God. Finish it. The B-I-B-L-E. Well, our time is gone. I thank you for your patience with me. But I wish the message was over, and it's not. Because Paul has already fought against faith plus rules, faith plus experience, but there's a third pressure, many pressures. It's a third enemy. And you know as well as I that we can deal with one enemy against the United States and we still have to deal with nine others. And so Paul's dealing with a third. That if we're going to survive in these last days, we have to join other true believers in standing against those who intimidate to asceticism. And you might even be saying today, I don't even know what that means. Good, you need to be back next week. Because let me tell you something. If you don't think you're under threat just because you don't know what the word means, you are sadly mistaken. It is one of the most insidious threats in all of the body of Christ today. And you need to come back. And if you cannot be here in person, I beg you to listen to it online. Discover what the Apostle Paul, whose voice is silenced, but whose words in the scriptures are clear. Discover just how much he is concerned about us. I'll see you next time. Father, thank you for the word of God. And it is my prayer that those that would be listening to this message would be good Bereans. They wouldn't react to perhaps my inability to communicate properly, my human frailties, but they would negotiate and once again face the realities of the clear and revealed scriptures, that they would be good Bereans who evaluate even what this message has said in light of Scripture. Father, help us to not be intimidated. Help us to hold on to the truth and examine everything carefully. In Jesus' name, God's people say, Amen. In this obsession with the things this world says make us happy. Yeah.